Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. Um, the Truth to Power Show brings a weekly guest on the proverbial meditation cushion to engage in a thoughtful conversation uh, at the intersection of the personal and political. Um, with us today is Jessica Hines, the co-host. Thank hello, you. Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome. And uh, our special guest today is Nana Brew-Hammond, who is the author of Powder Necklace, which uh, publishes weekly called a winning debut. Named among 39 of the most promising African writers under 39, her short fiction was included in the anthology Africa 39, New Writing from Africa South of the Sahara. Her writing um, has also appeared in Everyday People, The Color of Life, a short story anthology, uh, as many as many other uh, publications, uh, forthcoming uh, from Bruhamon is a children's picture book, and she also has a short story collection called Women's Work. Welcome, Nana. Hi, how are you? Actually, the, the short story collection isn't mine. I have a short story in the collection. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, great, just great. To, just to shout out Michelle Sewell, who worked really hard to to put that um, anthology together. Oh, great, great. Thank you, thank you. Um, so why don't we start off, like talking about, you know, you've written short stories, and, uh, novels, and poetry, and how um, you're able to uh, kind of navigate these different genres and different formats and bring your message or your themes and, and, and uh, interests, passions into these different formats. I want to start with that. Yeah. Um, thank you for, first of all, having me on. It's such a pleasure um, to be here. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and I also um, it's funny um, that you asked that question because um with writing, a lot of it has been just sort of me kind of um, tinkering around with different genres. Um, yeah. I, I am of the mind that um, as a writer, no matter what your your main genre is, you should be exploring all the different formats. So I have written poetry and um, I've written screenplays. I've written plays. I've written fiction, um, nonfiction, um, magazine articles, etc. And um, what I find is each each type of writing, each style of writing strengthens a different aspect of my of my craft or myself as a writer. Poetry helps me to kind of distill um, emotion and really kind of consider language in a way that I wouldn't if I was just focused on like the narrative. Um, nonfiction helps me um, strengthen just sort of like and and um, plot and and just kind of really getting the story down. Um, sc- screenwriting, playwriting, um, sharpen my ear for dialogue, um, et cetera. So um, that's kind of how I um, approached um, writing and writing in different um, genres and formats um, in the beginning. And now I find that it's made it a lot easier for me to slip in between, you know, writing poems or and understanding when maybe a poem is more um, applicable to something that I'm trying to say versus um, a short story. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting being someone who plays around in different, you know, formats as well that um, I find sort of I'm of the belief with my meditative writing practice that like there's this collective unconscious where like all of our characters and stories are just like swimming around and that, you know, the character or when it comes to you, like it doesn't understand format it just knows what it is. And so it kind of like knocks on the back door of your mind and is like, Hey, can I come in? And you let it in. And sometimes, you know, your silly conscious brain goes, Oh, 
a poem or oh a screenplay but like that character that 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 story is just like i am what i am and so it's interesting you know just to play with what would happen if i turned this into a poem what would happen if i turned this into a painting what would happen if i turned this into you know dance and i've had to me i find that when these characters want to communicate to me in a way where it i normally wouldn't pay attention they come to me as a poem because they know that poetry is the place where i put the least amount of pressure on myself mm-hmm. and then like yeah. two weeks later i'll read it and i'll be like oh this should be a screenplay yeah and i've had so many great short films come to me as poems and i just think that it's it's great because you're just you're you're allowing yourself to communicate more effectively by practicing all those different forms. Yeah. Cause yeah. And I, I totally agree. They are muscles, you know, they are yeah. muscles where. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> so Nana, why don't we go into some of your major passions and themes and such. And we were talking a little bit before the show about cultural identity and mm-hmm. identity. Um, what do those things mean to you and how do you express uh, that search for or that, exploration of cultural identity mm-hmm. in your writing mm-hmm. yeah you know, i've shout well, out some of your works yeah i was um so i was born in the u.s actually um upstate new york and um my parents are Ghanaian, and um i have throughout my life um been sort of i always get the question or there's always been this interrogation of the authenticity of my identity as um an american living in america it's like you're not American, you're African, you're Ghanaian, you're black. And then I go to Ghana and I'm called Bruni, which means white person. Um, And they consider me, you know, American there. And I've always kind of slipped between, moved between the two identities. And um, for a long time, I felt I had to kind of prove something. So when I'm in Ghana, I like try my hardest to speak the language and enunciate perfectly. So people see that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm authentic to this space. And then in wherever space I'm in, in the States, it's the same thing, trying to prove that I belong. And um, it's taken me a long time to just um, sit in the fluidity of who I am and accept that, um, you know, I am authentic and I deserve to be here um, specifically when it comes to my Ghanaian identity or my African identity, um, I did a lot of, um, just reading and research about, um, you know, just the exodus that took place, um, between, um, was it 1966 and 2006, about 3 million Ghanaians left, um, because of political upheaval, because of, you know, economics, et cetera. And those children were born outside the country. And I remember when I was in high school in Ghana, I got teased mercilessly by my um, schoolmates about like, oh, you know, Bruni, Bruni, you're not really Ghanaian. And now to see some of them living here in the States and having their children, I wonder, you know, what are their thoughts about their children's identity and their, quote, authenticity? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, pro- I I examine a lot of that and, and work a lot of that out in my writing through my um, through my work. Yeah, and why don't we go into like one super work and then like how you were able to kind of communicate. You you were telling a little bit about the kind of telling interesting or funny stories about around these uh like serious or or kind of very nuanced topics, kind of going into like the humor of it and such. Yeah. So why don't we tell a little bit about how you're able to explore kind of provoking, surprising reactions out of you know something that could be considered very like 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I so growing up, my parents, my mom um, loved goat meat and goat meat is a really big part of our diet, um, the Ghanaian diet. So um, you can't go to Pathmark or at least you couldn't when I was younger to buy like a tray of goat meat. So what we would do is drive out to Jersey to the farms to um, kill a goat. And I remember as a kid, like, you know, this trek, it was like this far out farm in Jersey. We'd drive out there, we'd get there and seeing like, okay, the, you know, the, the farmhand goes into the pen um, to get the goat and the goats know that he's there to like kill one of them. So they all like part, like, you know, the Red Sea, when he walks in, he seizes one. And I remember, um, when he, whoever he seized or whichever goat he seized, there were other goats that would start crying. And I was so taken by that as a kid. I was like, oh my goodness, like the family members are crying for this one that is going to be killed. And then of course you see the, like the butchery happen. You see the, you know, the goat is blowtorched and, and killed and, you know, all that stuff. And just seeing that and having that relationship to meat. And then our freezer is filled with this meat for the next six months um, and I'm not a vegetarian, by the way, I eat oh, meat, yeah. so <laughs> it's not even, it's not even anything like that, but it was more just kind of, it, it was it, so writing. I remember I wrote a story about it from the perspective of the goat, um, because it really kind of, um, personified the goat to me, like having the experience of seeing, um, them react in the way that they did. Um, and I think that that's, and then I, as I was doing research for that story, I started finding out like, oh, um, you know, in the in the 90s, um, there started to be a, a larger wave of immigrants coming from the Caribbean and Africa and um, the um, and India and Pakistan coming to Queens. And so I started realizing, oh, this is why we stopped going to the farm, because now all of the halal butchers and the um, and the slaughterhouses started opening in Queens and so we could get our goat meat and our fowl and other types of meats um, in the neighborhood and we didn't have to go anymore. And as I was doing my research, I called a farm hand, a farm, a couple farms. And she was saying to me that um, they're no like the farms are like closing down because they've lost that that foot traffic. And I thought that was such an interesting kind of um, way that like these immigrant communities were um were interacting with these farms like way out in Jersey and how they've stopped interacting and how that's affected the economy um, in this specific way. Yeah. It's so interesting to me, like uh, when we explore in our own stories and then we start doing research on them, how the role of research is can, can really make it more, more robust, our appreciation of our memories and our understanding of context of things that have happened to us and things that, we've grown up with and, and how the larger narrative, the public narrative, um, you know, informs our personal, our personal narrative, you know? So like how we're doing research and, and the process of like finding out the real reasons, if you will, for, you know, things that may have been a mystery to us growing up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think something interesting about that is just uh, that we have a narrative about our history yeah. and, you know, anytime you have a single narrative about something, there should be caution. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, I've, I've worked through a lot of like having this narrative about what my childhood was and then doing a lot of therapeutic work and going in and, and finding a narrative that is more effective for moving forward with the person I want to be. And I, and I do, cause like when you're a kid, like, you know, you're just like, this is what life is and you accept things so much. And I think, 
part of our jobs as adults and especially as artists in our world and in our culture right now is to question the narrative that mm. we have. And, you know, it's okay to question other people's finds, but more importantly, it's just questioning your own over and over again and be like, is this, you know, is this, is this the most helpful narrative for the type of life and the type of culture that I want to create? And, you know, like I also, I grew up hunting with, with a bow and arrow. So I remember at five years old, like bringing down a, a black bear in California. And like, that's how we wow. ate in the winter, you know, <laughs> caribou, deer, um, pheasants, ducks. Like, so, you know, it, I, I, it's so interesting. I'd never thought about like, like looking at the other animals, you know, it's like, I was like, there's never any other animals uh-huh. around when you're, uh-huh. when you're hunting a bear, it's like, it, you, run, you run it up a tree. It's there alone. Yeah. And, and I just never thought about that with the meat. Like to me, it was so in my narrative that I'm like, this is how we eat. Cause my dad was a one man concrete poor, my stepdad who raised me. And so in the winter he couldn't work. And my mom was just a seamstress from just, she was an amazing seamstress from her home. But so like, you know, I was just like, oh, this is how we eat, you know? And, um, and it never, you know, like that, the, seeing that perspective, I was like, oh, like I'd never thought about like the other parts of that animal's family or the way that animals do have connection to each other and feel that pain because I was just like, this is what I need for my survival. And I think that's what leads into a lot of how really good people can do really painful, bad things to other people in our community and our cultures, because when you feel like it's your survival, suddenly you don't see like the tears of, of what the effects of what you're doing, you know, might be. So I think what you're saying is the reason for all the suffering in humanity in history. I mean, I think what, what it comes down to is when people have enough meat to eat or have enough food and shelter and they're comfortable, they're not necessarily looking with, you know, squinting eyes at the person next door. They're like, fine, live your life. But when things start to get uncomfortable, then you start blaming people. You start questioning Mm. their, um, their place and whether or not they deserve to belong there because you feel that the resources are scant. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, yeah, I I think once we, if we can really look at each other as um, part of us and part of ourselves, um, I think it would be different, but it's, I mean, that's of course, like, you know, that's the kumbaya of it, but it's very difficult. But But I think it's possible. And this is the thing of like when, you know, when we're in, there are, t- and that's what I think art is so important is that art helps us to feel that connection to the whole versus, you know, when we get in more of the left side of the brain and we see things as parts and we see things as separate and we have the inability because when the left brain is more active than the right brain, you don't have the ability to feel that connection. Right. It is the right side of the brain that says you are part of a larger whole. This is all part of a continuum. And so you know, that's what good art does. And to read a story like, or, you know, I've never been, you know, I've only, the only place I've been in Africa is South Africa. And like, that's Mm -hmm. my only experience. Mm -hmm. But when you were speaking about this feeling of feeling in between, I was like, oh my God, like, that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel Mm -hmm. like I, for class in Mm -hmm. America, I Mm -hmm. feel like with middle, upper middle class, I am, oh shit, watch what I say. Don't go into your country, you know? And then when I'm, you know, back home where I'm with people in like the lower class where I was born, you know, they look at me and they, like I can feel their 
like you don't belong here anymore. And I always feel in between with my identity and, you know, and like, and that's, I was just like, what a human amazing thing and how cool that like you've experienced in a way that I haven't. And I just feel like, and yet we can share in that same feeling. Yeah. yeah like yeah. I was like, oh my God, like I feel seen. I feel like there's this mirror of validation of a little bit of the pain that I've experienced and that someone else has it. I think that's mm. like the beauty of art. What it does is it, it validates and mirrors um, our repressed wounds in a way that helps us understand that like we all have been through all of it and we're just sort of like we're walking wounded yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) and 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 that instead of attacking each other like if we if you realize if every person that you attacked either verbally or mentally or or however like if you realize that they had the same wound as you i don't think anyone would do that you know but it's so hard to see it to recognize the wound in someone who is saying or doing things that we don't inherently believe in. And that's like the thing that I'm trying always to get to in my writing is I'm like, let me take who I think is the most horrific human being on earth and let me get so curious about them until I find the place where I feel like I am that person. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's, that's one of the hardest things. I think a lot of us talk the talk, but few of us are able to really, really um, put ourselves inside um, the hearts and minds of the people that we detest, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, yeah. it's easier to kind of hold them at arm's length, but, um, we're all human beings and it all comes from somewhere, um, that we can likely identify with if we were to sort of pull, pull the skin back, you know? Yeah. I think ultimately we have to realize that, um, you know, the, the what's going on inside our minds, not always translate into the way in which we express it and the way other people see us is through our words and actions and, you know, we're getting brief hints at, you know, what's going on in our minds and hearts. But, you know, for that's why we have to remember that for, for others, their perception is valid in the sense that our, our footmarks or footfalls or our footprints are leaving on the, on this world ultimately. And, you know, that's why that interrogation of, of um, that process of introspection, interrogation to understand, well, is there alignment between what I'm saying and how I'm acting and how I'm feeling and how I'm, in my, my intentions Absolutely. or my, or my wants for, to put in this world, whether or not the footfalls are, 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 um, you know, in line with that and, 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 and to what extent, you know, Absolutely. and how can we bring it back? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think so. there's just this misconception with a lot of people that to understand someone is to agree with them or to mm. say what, or to condone them. Yeah. And I'm like, no, like I don't, I don't condone the behavior and especially the way that, you know, the sitting president chooses to express himself. But I don't see why just screaming at it and, 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 and adding to the yelling versus, you know, looking at and being like, this is a wounded child. This is a wounded child that has been given a massive amount of power. And I do not condone his words or his actions, but just saying this person's an idiot and dismissing him does not help in any way, shape or form, you know, And I think that that's something where it does, there's a lot of misunderstanding about like things like forgiveness. Like people automatically assume that to forgive someone is to condone the behavior to say this can happen again. And what I love about, you know, meditation and and emotional intelligence is really being able to separate and be like, oh, look, I'm looking at one emotion and and I'm attaching three others. And and that's not actually true. And, you know, mostly it has been art and novels that has taught me that, which is why I'm just like, 
so admire, you know, before we started the podcast, um, we were talking a little bit about how much work goes into writing a novel and how you just can't hold that much story in your head at yeah. once. Oh yeah. 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 And so I'm just so curious as someone who is only taken baby steps into the, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. that long form as, as a screenwriter, I'm used to 90 pages. Um, but how do you tackle holding that much story in your head or do you? Uh-huh. <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting question. I, I, my poor sister, I call her and I read things, I read chapters at a time to her aloud and, and she listens patiently and at the same chapter again and again and again with minor revision. And I say that to say, I think it's so important to have somebody who will like wade through the mess of it with you. Um, somebody who you can trust, who can read um, you know, early drafts, um, and then like people who can, whom you trust, who can read like more polished drafts. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, and then also being, um, really critical with yourself and taking the time to kind of, you know, slay your dragon, like, what is it? Kill your darlings. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, really just, um, being open to that and being open to what's best for the story versus what, you know, you have thought and decided is is what you wanted the story to be being open to it evolving before your eyes when i the book that i um that i am sort of in edit mode right now with um when it first started it was a completely i wouldn't say completely but it was a, a much different book than it is now mm. and for a long time i was like wedded to you know this narrative and then my character felt like You know, I hate to be like that person that's like, my character spoke to me, but my character was kind of like, I would never do that, (laughs) you know, and just being open to and accepting that and letting the story take me to a place that I didn't initially um, envision um, is huge. Um, Yeah, no, I think that's so important um, that if you want to write a story that has characters that people believe are real, that you need yeah. to treat your characters as real people, as real people, which means it's kind of like having a kid where it's like, you can want that child to grow up to be a firefighter all you want. But if that kid mm. grows up and is like, I'm a clown, <laughs> you want to be a good parent, you will help them be the best damn clown that they can be. And there is a certain amount of, I say like, surrender that I'm like, it's like listening to your characters. And, you know, with my writers, you know, I'm like, if you don't know your character, you need to get to know them and you don't get to know them by just choosing like a bio. I don't understand why people write those bios. And I'm like a bio in like a playbill is the most boring thing to read. (laughs) It's like a bunch of facts about Jessica that will definitely not tell you what it's like to be around her. (laughs) And I'm like, just go spend time. I was like, how do you, how do you get to know people? I'm like, you spend time with them. You go through tragedy with them. You go through celebrations with them. And you know, it's a wonderful thing when your characters do speak to Mm -hmm. you. Cause you know, I mean like they're, like I've had characters do that where essentially they'll just like bitch slap me and be like, yeah. no, this is not the right thing uh-huh. to do. And I, I think if, if, if writers practice that surrender of control, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and, are, and if they just trust that the story is already inside of them mm-hmm. and that they're there to let it out instead of control it, that it, the writing process actually becomes quite e- easy, easier, I mean, nothing's easier, but like, but just, yeah. you don't have to, 
you don't have to work so hard cognitively. It's more about just connecting emotionally and letting it fall out of you. And the yeah. idea of birthing the story rather than building it. That's yeah. true. But I will say that um, there is um, benefit to um, in the early stages, sketching things out. Mm -hmm. I personally, I, I go back and forth because I'm not good at like, I'm not an outliner when it mm -hmm. comes to writing my novels, but um, I have tried to be, and I see um, how it can be helpful um, because I think that what my fear was in writing an outline uh, was that, you know, then it's going to hamstring me mm -hmm. to this kind of rigid plot. And it was like, no, you still have to get to, you know what the end point is, but you still have to get there. Mm -hmm. It's kind of yeah. like, we all know we're going to die, but we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the details of what's yeah. going to happen in between. You know yeah. what I mean? No, I, I think it's the, what I found is most helpful for most people is the idea of it's kind of like when you travel. It's like, let's have a plan. Mm -hmm. OK, but let's not actually like put the money down on those hotels. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to Japan in next month and I'm like, all right, maybe I'll do two days in Tokyo. I'm going to do four days in Kyoto. I'm going to do two days in Osaka. But I'm not putting anything down that would lock me into that. Yeah. I have a plan so that if I show up and there is no inspiration, uh -huh. <laughs> I have stuff to do and I will have a lovely trip. But I am not so tied to it that if something magical happens, I can't run off and be like, you know, if suddenly I, you know, run into, you know, Charlize Theron and she's like, hey, let's hop <laughs> over to Hong Kong. I'm going to be like, yes, Charlize, of course uh, we are going to Hong Kong. But you know what about that? I think it's a specific uh, mindset, but I think that you can still book the hotels and then Charlize comes along and you ditch it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. And I think that's the yeah. thing. It's like at the end of the day, you know, for some people, the outline is just the gateway to mm -hmm. whatever, to, to, yeah. to getting it down. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I think that, um, the, you, you don't lose the magic. I think you only lose the magic when you don't, um, when you're not flexible well, and when, when you choose to follow an original idea versus when the magic shows up, exactly. if Charlie yeah. shows up, you always follow Charlie's no matter <laughs> what you've done. Okay. Uh -huh. But, and, and that's why sometimes people will get on me and they'll say like, oh, Jessica's anti outline, which is absolutely not true. I am. I am anti following an outline when Charlie shows up, when the, when the yeah. magic. Be, and I, I know that some yeah. people will have an aversion to loss of time. Mm -hmm. And so with most of the people I work with, I will be like, you can outline, but do not spend months outlining because yeah. then you feel like you're so invested in it mm -hmm. that when Charlie shows up, now you have this unconscious resistance to loss mm -hmm. or waste of time, mm -hmm. which is a very, very powerful unconscious thing in, in the human brain. And so, you know, but it is very different for different people, depending mm -hmm. on how you were raised, depending on, you know, and that's why every single writer is different. And so, you know, if you are a writer out there and you're hearing a lot of voices of people saying do this or do that, just know that you are a unique weirdo <laughs> and that you will just need to play around with what works for you. Totally. And it may not work for anyone else. Totally. totally. So I'm going to take a moment to listen a little bit to your writing. Uh, if you have something pulled up and uh, we can get a chance to get exploration of somehow the, some of these themes and, and, and play come into sure. being. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to read a poem um, about immigration. <laughs> okay. um, it's called Just So You Know. Just so you know, there is no wall high enough to deter a wife who just paid a stranger to marry her husband. There is no fence wide enough to keep out a mother forced to lay on her back so her baby could get on a boat. 
There is no band strong enough to bar a man who has exchanged the name he was born with for nine numbers he can work with. There is no mandate more potent than the cocktail of desperation, determination, ambition, and hope. Because there is no law more comprehensive than the laws of nature and of nature's God, which hold this truth to be self-evident. All humans are created equal, endowed by their creator with the inalienable right to live, free to pursue purpose. So when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for a person to secure this right beyond borders made by men, prudence dictates a remembrance that there once was a time when you had no choice but to leave everything you knew too, when you had to start over. When the plant closed and the company moved to the place a caravan of 4,000 humans just walked 1,600 miles to get away from. When your wisdom got too expensive. When you didn't know how to work the new printer. When the children you trained became strong enough to do your job. When you laid on your back. When you paid all you had. But still, you couldn't save your family or yourself. Just so you know, our flags are the same shade of surrender. Just so you know. Thank you, thank you. Very nice, very nice. Um, I think it really speaks to kind of what we were discussing. We kind of touched on a little bit more about how, like, you know, the, the, the country is, you know, moving towards this more reactionary place, but also how these um, these essential human elements cannot be stopped or, or deterred from by these, these, uh, these um, larger forces, kind of reactionary forces that are trying to consolidate their power, trying to push forward towards repressing or oppressing mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. that the, the human spirit will continue to um and the way you, the way you, the wording of it and the way you were able to bring that into being was was very beautiful i really appreciate that you. thank, thank you. you thank you um so returning to i guess cultural identity and such and how we're responding or reacting to or how we're trying to uh grow with this kind of climate we're living in why don't yeah. we talk a little bit about that and how what's your feelings towards the way in which, uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't. I, in my opinion, it's not so much the president himself as much as it is the the forces and the and the institutions that are you know trying to reassert themselves and, and all over the globe. Really, yeah. mm-hmm. we have this conservative and reactionary movements that are trying to push down the other and yeah. push down, you know, specifically with with uh, in regards to racial identity and in regards to cultural identity, trying to assert themselves as being superior and all those kinds of things. But what do you think about all that? And what's your, I I actually do. um, I, I, I agree to a certain extent. I agree that, um, you know, these are forces that are happening around the globe and um, it's not just one person, but I do think that um, it's dangerous to underestimate Mm. the role that um, a leader like um, our president, um, President Trump, it has in mm. in fomenting um, these kinds of um, mm. behaviors. I just came back from um, Berlin, and I, you know, went to see um, the Berlin Wall, you know, as a tourist, and I went to see um, the Sachsenhausen concentration camp, mm. and I did a tour um, of both sites, and as they were sort of breaking down how, um, you know, Nazism like started to take root. It was small acts of of first kind of picking out people who were who didn't belong, identifying them as 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 outsiders. Then it was slowly rolling back people's rights and it became and these um, these these uh, attacks grew you know over time but it's it was it was always like sort of the frog in the boiling water like at first it was mm-hmm. okay it's not it's it's bad but it's not me 
then it's it's getting closer, but it's still not me. And it's not that bad. And they've taken away this right, but I'm still here. And then mm. over time, it starts to get so big and so much that finally, before you know it, they're building a wall around you and they're like, <laughs> you're not allowed to leave. Yeah. Um, or, you know, they're putting you in a concentration camp because you're disabled. Mm. And I mean, these things start slowly. So I think it's very, very important that we um, are aware yeah. of, of these things and we don't, um, I don't know, um, explain them away and really um, notice these these signs and quickly um, call them out and stop them. Because before, I mean, look, America you know, we have been a certain way for um, over the last, what, 100, um, what, 1776. We, we've had our, our issues, you know, mm. with, with race and, and class and all of these things. But um, it's very, very possible for um, for things to kind of go to a, of a to a dangerous or crazy place yeah. much quicker than we realize. I think we take for granted our liberties. Um, but when you have situations where um, people, when a, a president uh, forget about President Trump, but when a person of that leadership quality does not understand that um, he by sending out a specific tweet, he has the power to, um, you know, change the, the the stock price of, you know, of or when he um, attacks an individual not understanding that he has the weight of the government and the power that he has behind him. Mm. Or even just the army of followers that have, because like as someone yeah. who came from disinfer like non-land owning impoverished whites, right? Like that was my upright. So like, you know, and that's a lot of the people who felt like, like I didn't vote when I was first could, because I was taught in my community that this country was not built for us. It was built for land owning white men. Mm. And I was a non-land owning white woman and so this country was not built for me. And so I should not participate in the political system. And then, you know, Trump comes around and he speaks our language and he got and 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 a single tweet. I'm not even that worried so much about like the 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 government that that he can wield. But I'm the people of like the trolls, the mm. the fact that he can say one thing about one woman and she will get death threats. Absolutely. And, yeah. and start living in in fear and and it's interesting because i was talking to my friend he's been he's he he uh immigrated from india and he's been he's now a u.s citizen took him like eight years like yeah. did all the good work <laughs> right um is an amazing human being is one of the smartest and kindest people i've met and you know i i was talking to him and i was like what would have to happen for you actually to like change your daily routine in regards to what what's going on right now you know because i was like as a as an a middle-class male, I was like, oh, you know, I was like, but also as an immigrant, I was like, I was just interested in how, because to me, like, I get so scared about, like, rights for women, you know, yeah. like, I get very worried about that. And, you know, and he was like, honestly, he was like, it would have to get really bad before I left or did anything. Wow. And I was just like, that <laughs> yeah. scares me because yeah. I'm like, you know, you know what it's like. I mean, like more than maybe someone who was born in the U.S. and is white and, you know, has never mm. faced the same scrutiny or just like question of like, do you even belong here? And and I see myself doing it all the time where it's like, I'll come in here and I'll say this. But then, you know, I go home and there is this feeling of like, I don't know what to do to not be the frog in the water. Aside yeah. from voting, which... I don't even like, I was like, what do we do? I mean, aside from that and creating art that 
maybe helps wake people up and practicing how to talk to people in a way that isn't preaching to the choir, but is just like, yeah. I call it like just planting the seed or putting the thorn in the side, whatever side that they're on, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, cause I really don't agree with this liberal, like let's just pat each other on the back and assume superiority mm-hmm. yeah. thing mm-hmm. that frustrates me. And I see happening a lot of time in the liberal entertainment, which I find it's funny and it's good, but I'm like, it's not helping. Yeah. We are yeah. getting further and further apart. Yeah. And you know, it's like I feel it inside of my body because I know that I could go home right now and that 80 percent of the people I know back home, you know, I'm, I would be shocked as a Brooklyner to hear their point, you know, and I'm yeah. just like, yeah. you know, so I mean, aside from creating art that helps people see themselves in the face of someone who they thought they had nothing in common with. Yeah. I don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, I think that also it makes me think about how. Uh, there's kind of a, a in the in the cultural um, ethos. I, I understand there to be like a an understanding that, like for example, taking a metaphor analogy with um, you know the line between something that's clever or stupid or creepy. Or actually, I, specifically, I was thinking in terms of um, like creepy or romantic. You mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. like it's how much mm-hmm. charisma is involved. You mm-hmm, know, like or how yeah. much attraction is involved, or how much charisma is involved. So like uh, with this regard, so like. We're able to accept a lot of things because, you know, Trump has a certain charisma of like, of, but his charisma, I think, is specifically in regards to how he puts on the entertainment value mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. how he's like the buffoon and we can't really take him that seriously or mm-hmm. there's something seems kind of entertaining and like, like in the reality show kind of tra- train wreck kind mm-hmm. of a, 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 a interest there mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. we're kind of like almost can't believe it's not true. Yeah. I can't believe it's true. It's so extreme or so. Hyperbole. Yeah. Um, but um, at the same time, we have to understand that the, the, the um, like removing that and seeing how all these enablers around him are, you know, then using that charisma or using that kind of attraction value to kind of defuse the fact that the water is boiling mm-hmm. more and more. And mm-hmm. definitely it, it requires any product requires a very charismatic salesman to be able to push it. Mm-hmm. And he definitely is playing that role in the sense of, He's selling the product, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you know, what forces are creating that product and what forces yeah. are. No, yeah. I, I, I hear you. Um, but I, I think that he is, hmm. when people call him an idiot, I'm like, he, there are definitely idiotic things about him, but yeah. I think he's actually quite smart Yeah, because exactly. he's That's figured think, yeah. out how to, yeah. um, play people and how to mm-hmm. manipulate the system to work for him yeah. on so, uh, in so many ways from yeah. his own wealth um, and gerrymandering his, his finances around to um, his, his, you know, his himself as getting himself elected as president of the United States. But I think that um, he's not just a salesman. I think that he is actually stoking um, like actively stoking um, mm. these um sort of uh, nascent um, kind of um, feelings. And he's also playing on the ignorance of people because I love what you said about um, America being um, for land owning whites. Right. And I think that that's something that um, that's the biggest, I think con that racism has played on, on people in this country because it has made it has made poor white people not understand that they're being victimized by racism too. Yeah. And I remember when Obama was um, running um, 
and I went and did some canvassing in um, Philadelphia and I went to this neighborhood and it was all black. And there was this one white woman living in the worst conditions I've seen old white woman in this broken down house. And I'm Republican. She told me I'm Republican. And it's not about the Republican versus Democrats, because I'm I don't necessarily believe that either party is representing the needs of um, of people who are um, disenfranchised, who are yeah. poor. Mm-hmm. But um, hearing her say that, I knew that she was only aligning to that identity because that identity meant to her that she was different from her black neighbors. And I'm like, mm. sis, you're not different. You're in mm-hmm. you're you're facing the same issues as your neighbors. Mm. And it was sad to me and it broke, it actually really broke my heart. And I will, I haven't forgotten this woman because I'm like, what are you holding on to? You're propping mm-hmm. up a system that is keeping you down. Yeah. And that's how I feel about, um, you know, a lot of what, um, what the president is, is stoking right now, because it's like, you know, you're trying to stoke this idea of superiority amongst these people, but, at the end of the day, you're not really helping. You're actually um, making things worse for them in the long run, you know, and it's yeah. and it's not it's it's sad that, you know, they can't see it because of this cloud of like racism and try to, you know, push the blame on immigrants. And it's like, mm. OK, it, once you push out the people whom you feel are taking your jobs or um you know, you're ascribing all of these, the president has ascribed all of these negative um, things to, it's like, it's not going, you're, you're going to be the ones who are going to have to, to do those things. And I, I just think that there needs to be a really serious interrogation of, um, of what, of what this country really is built on. And, yeah. and to your point about, um, about this sort of salesmanship and selling the product, I think America we need to really look at our um, intoxication with entertainment yeah, and with like mm-hmm. just commercialism. Like we're always looking for entertainment value and it's like some things maybe don't need to be entertaining. Mm. I'm not against, you know, us figuring out ways to make things easier to understand and make things more accessible to people. But should we really be um, need to laugh? <laughs> you know, should we really need to, you know, be able to have a beer with our president. I mean, mm. maybe it's okay if if the person who is in the White House is maybe a little dry and is a policy wonk and really knows yeah. what's going on. You well, know, I think yeah. actually it's it's a very similar thing. This obsession with because you know this this going to entertainment and I when I hear that I hear you know this is a soothing technique. This is a coping medicine um, medicine. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That works too. Yeah. Um, um, uh, but when we go to entertainment, usually it's like, there's something coming up inside of us and we're like, I don't want to feel this right now. I can't deal with this. So we turn on a television show or yeah. we crack open a beer or, you know, you light a joint and that it's a coping mechanism that is essentially saying there is something happening inside of me that I don't want to look at or feel right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that to me is what's exactly what, what I know coming from, I think, impoverished some impoverished whites who are Trump fans, that's what they're feeling is that he is tapping into a resentment that has not been represented, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, in, and, and it's soothing to them to know like, Oh, like I can have a leg up on this person. It's like giving someone who has been, who may not even realize that they have been shoved down because, 
you know, and, and just, I, I remember hearing this of, of someone back home just being like, you know, the gays got their revolution, you know, people of color got their revolution, women got their revolution, you know, where's well, ours? ours? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that the, when, when Trump speaks, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's validating them mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. and it's soothing because, you know, and, and that is, and it's an entertainment for them, mm-hmm. you know, watch mm-hmm. the liberals squirm, yeah. like, right. Watch yeah. everyone. And, you know, and as someone who essentially my job is to help people create entertainment, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. one of the things that I'm, you know, but I, 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 I see that all the time where I'm like, you know, let us create entertainments at least that are subconsciously helping the world to be a better place and combating, you know, unconscious biases. You can have something that is pure entertainment that also happens to adjust biases so that we are not, you know, uh, pushing down marginalized individuals in our culture. And I think that those things can be combined, but I do agree on a larger level that like our obsession with comfort right now is is very problematic in our Mm -hmm. culture of, and I see it like 10 years ago, the writers I worked with, there was, I was like, this is going to take three years. And they're like, cool, great. And now it's like more often than not, the people are like, well, can, can I just, what would be easier? And I'm like, this is, this is, I was like, it's a screenplay. It's not going to be easy. Like it's art. You know what I mean? It's, I was like, if you want to do something that's easy, go play a pinball machine or go Mm -hmm. have a picnic or something. But because most of the app development in our life, the technology that is being created right now, most of it is geared towards comfort and ease and convenience. Mm. And so we, I think the frog and the pot is this idea that we don't even realize that we are becoming so obsessed with convenience Mm. and that, that I am totally scared about that. We're going to wake up in 20 years and no one's, and that like that ability to work hard or the joy from working hard and what we learn from working hard, the fact that we unconsciously value things more when we work harder for them. It's called the Ikea effect, which is that when yeah. you build it yourself or when you think you've built it yourself, <laughs> that you value it higher. And that what's happening is that we're creating relationships in our lives that we don't actually value that are yeah. looking like relationships, friends on Twitter or, or Facebook or whatever. And you know, I'm totally scared of, of what's going to happen in the following decades, just based off of the fact that, you know, you know, we are right now have children that are being raised that they want a song. They have it. They want a movie. They have it. They want clothes. It's all just like at the tip of their fingers. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know other than to say like, I'm, I'm worried. (laughs) Yeah. The robots are coming. (laughs) The robots are going to work so much harder than us. I mean, we're outsourcing, um, we're outsourcing a lot of the work that we have done. I mean, there'll be Mm -hmm. self-driving cars there, you know, there, there are programs now that can write articles and, and write Mm -hmm. books and, and it's, it's, it's definitely, um, it's scary, especially to people like us who are sort of like at the intersection of this, because we grew up at a time when, you know, these things weren't um, so facile. And now they, you know, now we can access so much more. Um, And I think that um, every generation kind of confronts this, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you have your grandmother that's like, when in my day, you know, it wasn't this way. Uh. Um, But I think um, what is on us is to figure out how do we use 
technology in a way that serves us rather than us serving it. Because I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of good that to me, I would think that, well, then, then we should be actually cultivating relationships more because we don't have to be in an office, Mm -hmm. you know, 24 seven, the way people had to be in the past. We don't have to drive the car. We can talk to the person that we're in the car with. Exactly. But I think what's the sad thing about what's happening is like, then we're just like, well, then I can produce even more. And then Mm -hmm. we, we become robots, you know, and that's the issue. But I do think that in some level, you know, the, the adage of, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same is kind of, applicable here because even though the form of you know, the medium in which we're expressing these emotions and we're as you're saying about generation after generation we've been dealing with different challenges but um ultimately I, in my perception you know we have the underlying structures of society and such have kind of stayed to some extent you know un- unfortunately sta- you know stable in the sense that we have you know people have moved up and down or moved sideways or whatever it is but these structures that say the same we have to question the underlying structures of, you know, patriarchy, of of social class and all those kinds of things. And question, how can we dismantle these kinds of things in order to free up and, and liberate ourselves at the very least, you know, as a country, as a, as a, as a person, as an individual, um, you know, not just individually, but socially as well. And then one interesting thing for me uh, that I wanted to quickly present to you guys um, is that uh, the one, one double-edged sword being that, even though I think that, uh, Trump has been, been become uh, his personality in, in, in a sense has also exposed the faults of the system and, and become because mm-hmm. he's not as, um, you know, calling to the media and all this, the media has kind of created a, a disharmonious uh, or a fractured relationship with him. That is actually that aspect of it has been the weak point that has exposed a lot of the systemic problems that have been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And finally, you know, we have uh, a uh, weak point that we can all kind of look at and say, oh, this exposed, you know, things that have been going on for so long. And, and it's become more and more acceptable to talk about it in uh, open ways, mm-hmm. in ways that during, you know, other administrations, it would have been like, oh, but, you know, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have. Been so able what you're to, saying yeah. is that America has been a high functioning addict. Yeah. <laughs> finally reached rock bottom. <laughs> yeah. and maybe we can yeah. Get some help. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so. I think, I think this is, is opened up a whole new yeah. avenue of, of, of discussion, you know, that. Yeah. It, yeah, it definitely has. Definitely and I think yeah. um, I think that, yeah, the media is definitely to blame in, <sighs> in many ways of the way they handled um, his candidacy, his yeah. campaign. Yeah seeking entertainment and the yeah. sales. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I think that his, um, his uh, handling of the media, you know, call, you know, making, calling them enemies of the state is straight out of the sort of like propaganda yeah. playbook and, fa- mm. you know, branding everything, fake news and really causing us to question what um, objective truth is, yeah. is also really scary it's not to say that what he I think what Trump does is he touches upon um, something that is true to a certain extent in society. There's definitely bias in the system. That mm. bias is coming through these different news organizations. You know, I hate that there's like the liberal news, the conservative yeah. news. Like I'm like, when what what's going on? I just want to hear the news. I don't want to hear your opinion. I just want to hear the news. Yeah. And we've gone we've come so far from that place but um but i think that um but then he stokes it 
and he yeah. doesn't do anything to 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 you know he manipulates it and i think yeah. that's that's the the issue so people who are not um really um watching and um they 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 hear that oh the the, the news is biased which is a truth and and they don't take it to the next conclusion um and then they allow him to get away with manipulating the news even further um and then we anyway we could yeah. talk about yeah. this forever yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> all, yeah. most of the news in america is biased but there's also a difference between that and straight out lying exactly. which is the difference exactly. between him and the news sources exactly. yeah. he will straight up lie yeah. exactly. and there's a huge danger in that exactly. i mean there's going to be bias in any news exactly. you can't completely take it out so yeah. I, I i also just want to say that he, he just feels like someone who has lost any sense of like real commitment or, or caring even like I, and that's why I've always been colored by the idea of since the 2016 election, they were talking about him being a puppet and all that. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like he's just someone who just doesn't care at all. And just is going like almost like on this, you know, how far can I push it? kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I, I always, I'm, I'm always colored by that perception since, you know, in the, in the mm-hmm. debates they were like, Oh, you're a puppet. And I was like, he just, I don't care. I'm just going to, keep yeah i just something reckless and something yeah. so extremely reckless i don't know mm-hmm. but um let me just do a few quick announcements as we start to wind down um ready for brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy education and free expression we rely primarily on donations from listeners like you so to help support our mission we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate or you can go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power and help sponsor this particular show to help us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible. Um, if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, I'd like to try my hand at a podcast, uh, you can go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash podcast studio and use the coupon code TTP for truth to power. Um as you already know, one of the few ways Radio for Brooklyn is able to generate revenue to keep our station on air is by offering affordable podcast recording services to people in the community. So, um, you know, feel free to uh, come in. You'll get a uh, low hourly rate, which includes a technician. So all you have to do is show up and record. This uh, amazing discount is offered um, through September 1st. So use the coupon code TTP. Uh, again, that's radioforbrooklyn.org slash podcast studio. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, um, you, if you're listening on your computer, you can uh, free yourself up by listening on iPhone and Android at, the, at their respective Play stores. Okay. Um, any last thoughts as we start to wind down? I may play a song going out so that we don't have to, you know, uh, <laughs> artificially keep this going to the well, end. How but, about this? I will, I will tell anyone who's <laughs> interested in, you know, writing or anything, you can find more um, about my workshops at meditativewriting.org. And is there anything that you're working on that maybe yeah. our viewers are interested in? direct people, Instagram yes. or anything? Um, so my website is nanabrewhammond.com. My Instagram is at nanaikua writer, N-A-N-A-E-K-U-A writer. And I am on Facebook um, at Powder Necklace, which is my the name of my first book. Yeah, go go buy Powder yeah. Necklace and read it. Yeah, cool, cool. and read um, my short story in the new anthology, New Daughters of Africa, as well, and all the other amazing short stories in there. But I want to just finish by saying that I, you know, I don't for anyone who tuned in this, I I loved this conversation, by the way, and I thank you guys so much for having me on. 
And um, this wasn't, a, you know, to be, um, I don't know about, I hate that we like focused on Trump so much <laughs> yeah, towards, the, I know, I know. towards the end of so it. Not, it's it's truth to power. Guess, yeah. I mean, yeah, it yeah. is. It's truth. To, we're speaking truth to power. But um, to anyone out there who tuned in just because they are interested in writing yeah. <laughs> and, and, and all of that, I mean, this is part of writing, you know, um, speaking the truth, I think is so important. And when you get to a place where you're, um, open enough to be honest um, through your characters, through the story. I think then it works out. Um, it works out getting to, it works out getting past that place of like, you know, I must write this kind of book or I must mm-hmm. stick with this genre. Or I must stick to my outline. You're just letting the truth lead. And yeah. I think that's super important. And, and yeah. allowing yourself to question your truth, I think mm-hmm. is always really good as an artist mm-hmm. is and questioning your story of like, maybe my maybe it is different mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and being able to see all of your characters and connect to all of them even the ones that maybe are your antagonists mm-hmm, or that you don't mm-hmm. feel connected with yeah. and and i think that was just like what was a lovely thing that happened here today is just you know asking questions being curious rather than judgmental you know replacing yeah. judgment with curiosity is like my number one principle of mm-hmm, meditative writing mm-hmm. and that means in all forms mm-hmm. you know i love that so yeah. um i i Yes. Like go read, go <laughs> yeah. read wonderful things by wonderful yeah. writers, question, get curious. Um, and I thank s- everyone for listening. I just Yay. want to say that also that, uh, I think that for writers out there, also give a shout out to all the writers out there who are listening and have kind of gotten a sense of our, um, rhythm in this show about writing and creative process that, you know, we, in order to get into these more sociopolitical aspects, we have to really dig deep into ourselves to find what's true for us. And how, and then ultimately going into ourselves and our own process, our own journey, we'll reconnect with the uber narrative of social, uh, social justice and social aspects and, and what's true to society. And if we don't know what's true for us, then we won't ever know what's true for society. Amen. So, yeah. So I'm going out with, uh, uh, I believe, uh, yeah, yeah, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maps. Uh, yeah, I just uh, put that up from uh, Pandora. Nice. Cool, cool. So we'll uh, sign off uh, every Monday at 8 a.m. Truth to Power Show airs and rebroadcasts on Thursdays at 9 a.m. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you so much, uh, thank Jessica. You. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Say, say, say